Won't you take up your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians, Philippians and chapter 2. As you may be aware, we've slowly been making our way through Philippians 2 every time I show up in the pulpit, um, and that's been a bit scattered in different services, and, and so I will do a brief recap of where we are up until this point, uh, both for those that it's been a while since you uh, were last in Philippians, but also if you're visiting with us, uh, that you may not miss out on what we have been learning thus far in Philippians. And so you will recall that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi to thank them for their support. We've also seen that the church in Philippi was one of the churches that supported the Apostle Paul, and they were very active in missionary work themselves. In addition to thanking the church in Philippi, we also see that the Apostle uses this opportunity as he writes to them to address various matters pertaining to life within the community of believers. And so as the Apostle Paul does this, one of the issues he's concerned about is division within the church, because he knows that if the church is divided, they will not be effective in the ministry of the gospel. And so this is one of his concerns, which we read about over and over throughout this letter. And the verses we are considering this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing the very same matter. So we will read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We will mainly be focusing on verses 6 to 8 today, and Lord willing, uh, next time we'll look at verses 9 through 11. So I begin reading Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made... death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Here ends the reading of the Word of God. From from quibbles in the playground over who should get the first turn on the swing, to debates between nuclear superpowers 
about a disputed piece of land. Pride is often at the heart of human conflict. Pride is at the heart of human conflict. And we see that this is not a problem that exists simply out there in the world. But pride is a plague that even within the church causes so much pain and disharmony. It is almost more repugnant in the church because we expect the church to be a safe house. We know that the church is the herald of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the humble savior who came down into this world, leaving his divinity in heaven and becoming a servant that we may be brought into relationship with God. This is the church that talks about the humble savior, the savior who washed the disciples' feet, who served them until the point of death on a cross. And so you can understand why pride in the church would be so contradictory to the message that we preach, to the message that we proclaim. Pride is not a new sin that we deal with in our world today or contemporary times. Pride was at the heart of the fall in the Garden of Eden. And it is no wonder that the Puritan John Boyce once said that pride is the last sin that shall be destroyed in us. Pride is a struggle that we have and we will continue to have on this side of eternity. So it is no wonder that the Bible throughout the Old and New Testament has so much to say about this dreadful sin of pride. Pride is at its core self-worship. It is the dethroning of God and it is the worship of self. It's essentially idolatry which the first commandment forbids. We shall have no other gods. And so when we are proud, we essentially give value to ourselves or give focus to our own abilities and giftedness in a manner which is sinful, which is unholy, unrighteous. We should be giving glory to God for his gifts to us, for the abilities that we have, but instead we begin to look to self. Isn't it interesting then, as the Apostle Paul in these verses deals with the matter of pride, he does not give us a long list of self-helps, of the seven steps you need to take to become humble. But instead, he points us to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I can't help but read a quote that I came across this past week, uh, and you may guess who it comes from. One preacher of a mega church says, when trouble comes, you don't have to get upset. When your plans don't work out, you don't have to fall apart. When someone is rude, you don't have to get offended. You have the power to claim. You have the power to remain calm, rather. Sorry. As I read that quote, the one word that you may have heard over and over again is the word, you. This preacher tells his congregation, 
that the solution is within yourself. You can be better. You can do better. And so, in the realm of this kind of thinking, you might say to someone, if you're struggling with pride, you have the power within yourself. You can be better. You can be humble. But that is a lie. You cannot make yourself humble any more than a dead man can make himself alive. This is why it is important for us all to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because pride destroys relationships. Look to Jesus because in the life and death of Jesus Christ, humility is made manifest in the most explicit way we can think and imagine. Look to Jesus. Consider his divinity, that he is very God of very God. Look to Jesus. Consider his incarnation, that he became man and dwelt among us. Look to Jesus and consider his crucifixion, that for our sake, He was crucified on the cross. Look to Jesus, for therein lies our hope. And as we look at our passage, we see that there is great, there is good news for us. If you look at verse 5, preceding the verses that we are going to be looking at, the Apostle Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so this is the good news this morning, that if you are in Christ, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is our righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul is is showing us Christ in the midst of uh, this challenge he gives to the Philippians. He's telling them not to be self-seeking, not to only look to their own interests, But he he presents Christ to us not only as the example, but he presents Christ to us as the one who has accomplished it, as the one who has paid the price on Calvary's hill. And so as we look to Jesus, we not only see the example of what humility looks like, this servant leadership, but we also see that as we struggle with pride day to day, as we struggle with pride in our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace, in the church, that when you fall into that sin of pride once more and you you cry out to the Lord, not again, Lord, not again, look to Jesus because he has paid it all. You are forgiven. Even this dreadful, horrible sin of pride is forgiven in Jesus Christ. And this does not mean that we should have a laissez-faire attitude towards pride and just say, oh, it's just pride, Christ has paid it all. No. God will not share his glory with any other. And oftentimes, we are contending with God's glory. We are the biggest stumbling block in our own lives. And it is no wonder that the Apostle Paul talks about putting self to death. We need to be killing the flesh daily. Because if we do not, it is the plague that will quench out any spiritual life that is left in you. 
And the reason is this, because pride is the dethroning of God. Pride is the dethroning of God in our lives. So then, let us look at this passage together in verses 6 through 8. Pride destroys relationships. Therefore, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so in the first place, let us consider Jesus' divinity. Consider Jesus' divinity. Look with me, if you would, at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ, coming from verse 5, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We see here that the Apostle Paul is reminding us and reminding the Philippians that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. Jesus Christ became a man. He took on the human flesh, but he did not cease to be God himself. And so if we look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this is, the, this is the Jesus that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians and chapter 2. Jesus did not count equality with God because he was very God of very God. But we're told in verse 6 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so... What this verse is saying is that Jesus could have called upon his divinity on many different steps throughout his life. He could have called upon a legion of angels, as we, hear, as we read about, uh, even when he's about to be arrested. Throughout his life, when he lacked anything, he could have called upon the resources that were at his disposal. It is no wonder that in the temptation, Satan tempts Jesus in this way, calling him to use his power. But Jesus does not do that. Jesus is submissive to God, his Father who is in heaven. And even as we look at what Jesus did, that though he would have every right to call upon his divinity and make use of the power which was his, it would not have been robbery as some other uh, translations would put it. But we can't help but contrast this with Adam in Genesis chapter 1. Adam, was, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he created them both. But what we see happening in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5 is that Satan comes and tempts them with this very issue of pride. He, t- he tells them, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, For God knows, said Satan, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This was the temptation that was placed before Adam and Eve, and Eve to be specific there. 
It is this temptation that was placed before them and they took the bait. They took the bait that Satan had put before them. And this was sin because Adam and Eve, though they were created in the image of God, they were not God. And so as they sought to become like God, they rebelled against God and they dethroned God and they were banished from the garden forever. But this is contrasted with the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who came into this world and he submitted to the will of the Father. In humility, he lived as a servant. And so though he could have made claim to his identity, he could have said, do you know who I am? When the gods punched him in the face or when they spat at him in the face while he was on trial. He could have easily said that and he would not have been out of place. But Jesus did not do that. As we have been learning in the evening services, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, the first part, that Jesus Christ is the very image of the invisible God. And Jesus tells the disciples that if they have seen him, they have seen God the Father. This was the Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. And so even as you're struggling with your own pride, as you're considering your struggle with pride daily, look to Jesus. Consider his divinity. Consider that Jesus Christ, though he was very God of very God, and he could have made claim to his identity, he never did that. Even as we have read from Isaiah chapter 53, he was silent, though he was led to the slaughter. And isn't it ironic then that the one who has a claim, who is the very God of very God and had every right to boast about his identity, never did that. And yet we, who pale in the comparison of the most eternal, most powerful God, often want to tell people, do you know who I am? I can't help but think of a toddler who swings their fist at their parent, thinking that they would defeat their parent. Oftentimes, they can't even stand on their own two feet. And they take a swing at the parent. And it's, it's pitiful. It's almost funny. But this is essentially what we are doing. We who should make much of God and not much of ourselves are constantly walking around with our chests puffed up, either explicitly or implicitly saying, do you know who I am? I can't believe he just said that to me. Does he know who I am? Does he know what college I went to? Does he know how many children I have? Does he know my salary? No, it doesn't matter. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. He did not count equality with God something that he would hold before people and say, do you know who I am? Reminded of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 8, 
verses 9 to 14. See the Pharisee coming before God in prayer with a holier-than-thou attitude, and yet the tax collector is humbled. He cannot even so as raise his eyes to heaven because he is aware of his own sinfulness. This is a picture of humility. As those who have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, those who are aware of the kind of lifestyle we used to live, when we're in this world as God-haters, and yet because of nothing in ourselves, God swooped down and saved us from our sins. What then shall we boast in, brothers and sisters? This is why looking to Jesus is the perfect antidote to pride. If you have your eyes open, the eyes of your hearts open to behold the glory of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, how then can we stand before him and be proud? What do we have to be proud about? Look to Jesus. Consider his divinity. Consider his way of life. So we need to look to Jesus not just when we come to church on Sunday and Philippians 2 is being preached. Not only when we get to Philippians 2 in our daily, in our yearly plan of Bible reading. We need to look to Jesus every day, every moment. Because if pride is the sin that has been described thus far today, then we are going to be fighting with pride the rest of our lives. But we are fighting with pride daily. And so we constantly need to be looking to Jesus. We need to be looking to the cross. And as we look through the pages of Scripture, the, the Scriptures are all about Jesus Christ. So whether you're in the Old Testament excuse me, or in the New Testament, whether you're in Genesis or Deuteronomy or Revelations, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. So having considered briefly Jesus' divinity, the fact that Jesus is very God of very God, let us in the second place consider Jesus' incarnation. Consider Jesus' incarnation in verses 7 and the first half of verse 8. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Just thus far for now. So we notice here that he made himself nothing. Jesus made himself nothing. <clears throat> Others, other translations uh, put it, he emptied himself. And this, as you can imagine, has sparked a lot of debate throughout uh, the centuries as people have debated what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself when he became a man. Well, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be God for one. We know that. Because when Jesus Christ was incarnate in the flesh, he remained fully God and he was fully man. 
But we do want to understand what the Apostle Paul means here, that he made himself nothing or he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He gave up his divine form and he also cloaked his divine glory. When Jesus was incarnate, he was not displaying his full glory as one would see the glory of God when you looked at him in his face. Now you'd know that when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God did not do that because he was told that if he was to behold the full glory of God, he would not live. And so one cannot look, at the face, look in the face of the glory of God and continue to live because it is, we are a sinful people and God's glory is so awesome we cannot stand in the face of his glory. And so his glory is cloaked in his incarnation as he takes on the human flesh. But he also surrendered his divine rights. So he continues to be divine. He is still very God of very God, but he gives up his divine rights. It also means that he, uh, in the way that God is present in all places at all times at the same time, God, uh, Jesus Christ, when he was incarnate, uh, was not present in every place at every time in his bodily form. I won't go along that that path for too long for now, because we need to move along. But that suffices to say, as an example, that though he remained very God of very God, in his incarnation, Jesus Christ gave up some of his divine rights, and his glory was cloaked. And many times when we think about Jesus' humiliation, the fact that he left his throne in heaven and he came and dwelt among us. We often think that his humiliation is only made manifest at the cross, and we will be talking about that a bit more in just a moment. But if you consider the fact that Jesus was born as a created being, in the sense that he was made human for his earthly ministry, And the lifestyle that he had to live, that in itself is a humbling experience. That in itself is God's condescension to live among us. So Jesus Christ leaves his glory in heaven where he is ministered to by the angels to come down to this earth and to be born in a stable, to have to go through the normal stages of life, learning how to walk, learning how to talk, as we read there in Luke, that he he grows in wisdom and knowledge and in stature. He had to go through those normal processes. That is all part of the suffering of Christ. Yes, it is made most manifest for us at the cross, but we see that the very fact that he took on the human flesh and lived as us, though he was God, is an example of his humility that he really made himself lowly and humble for the sake of the elect, that he might bring some to himself, those who have been chosen, those who have been called. But notice with me also 
that he made, the, the wording is very important in this verse, that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, of a servant. And so this was not something that was imposed upon Jesus Christ, but he willingly, he made himself nothing, and he takes the form of a servant. And, and here we are ma- references being made to that agreement within the Godhead, within the Godhead, in eternity past, the agreement that is often known as the covenant of redemption. Within this covenant, each member of the Godhead has agreed to a particular task that they would complete in the redemption of the chosen, of the elect. And so just as the Son is to be brought into the world to be the Savior of mankind, to be crucified on the cross, and then the Holy Spirit is to come and to be among the believers. So each member of the Trinity playing his part in salvation, not disconnecting one member from the other, but each of them playing their part. And so we see that Jesus Christ did this voluntarily. He made himself nothing, and he took the form of a servant. And he does this by being born in the likeness of man. He was a man just like us. He, he had the normal human experiences, minus the sin that we experience. He was tempted, but he never sinned. And so as we look to Jesus, we think of his example, even as I have been saying in the first point. Jesus Christ had reason to claim to his divinity, but he did not. But Jesus Christ also came and experienced the humanity that we have experienced. This is why he is called the great high priest who can, who can relate to us. He has lived the life uh, that we live, in a sense. So Jesus Christ humbled himself, and so consider his incarnation. As you look to Jesus, consider his incarnation, that he did not, he did not uh, count equality with God, but rather he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant. And then we look again at verse 8, and particularly the first part of verse 8. Being found in human form. Being found in human form. And this makes emphasis on the reality of the incarnation. The reality of the incarnation. Many people have, in a sense, aimlessly debated whether Jesus' incarnation was a historical reality. But that's a discussion for another day. But the wedding here and being found in human form shows us that this was a very real fact that took place. That Jesus Christ took on the human form and he was found. People lived with him. And particularly in the time that Jesus, uh, that the apostle Paul is writing, people would have been more familiar with the life that Jesus had lived among the people, among the disciples and other people that he interacted with. So this shows us the reality of 
the incarnation. So as we look to Jesus, we are to consider his divinity that we looked at in the first place, and also consider his incarnation. But thirdly, consider his crucifixion. Consider his crucifixion. And we see that in verse 8. So I'll read verse 8 once again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. So this verse describes for us the extent of Jesus' obedience. He was obedient throughout his life, as we have already been uh, looking at. We have reflected upon how Jesus was obedient throughout his life to the Father. He resisted the temptations of the devil. He resisted the temptations to call upon the legions of angels that could have rescued him when he was arrested and tortured. But Jesus' obedience is made manifest for us at the cross where he became, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death. Not just any kind of death, but death on a cross. And perhaps for us, as we are detached from history or the, the context of Israel's history and life uh, within Israel at the time, when we think of death on a cross, it's something that we have come to learn about through the years that we have, uh, we have studied the scriptures and we have uh, studied the culture. But to be crucified on a cross was essentially to be made an outcast, to be taken outside of the camp and be hung on a tree. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses, verse 23, speaking of one who has been hung up on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that, that the land may not be defiled, which the Lord thy God has given you. So we see, particularly I'd like to emphasize there, that the one who hangs on the cross has been accursed of God, has been accursed of God. And so it is of significance here that Paul is telling us that this is not any kind of death. And again, remember, for the apostles and for the audience that are receiving this letter, they are much more familiar. If not, it's part of their own tradition. So when, this, when he writes, even death on a cross, it immediately makes sense to them. Jesus Christ became a curse for you and for me. He hung on a tree. He hung on a cross in order that he may purchase our salvation with his very own blood. But notice again in this verse that Jesus does this willingly because Jesus is the very Son of God. He is very God of very God. Remember, remember Jesus' divinity from the first point. This is the Jesus who is crucified he is the one who hangs on the tree. Now consider for a moment, if somebody wanted to kill God, how would they do that? It is a trick question. You can't. You cannot kill God. 
And so the very fact that Jesus made it to the cross and he hung there and eventually gave up his spirit into the Father's hands shows his humility. Once again, he could have commanded all the cosmic resources at his disposal to remove him from there in a moment. But what caused him to remain there? He was seeking to be obedient to the Father. It was his love for the elect that kept him there on the cross. And so he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as he tells the disciples in John chapter 10, verse 18, he does it willingly. Nobody takes his life from him. Jesus was not murdered at the cross. I always find it interesting reading the account when they come to arrest Jesus. The soldiers and the Jews and the Jewish authorities think they have come up with a great plot. Judas Iscariot has betrayed Jesus Christ. He went around his back, and they've come up with this plan. They're going to catch him in the middle of the night. And what happens? Jesus comes out and says, are you seeking me? And they drop. They are in shock. And there there is more to it. But we see that they do not catch him off guard. They did not arrest Jesus because they came up with some smart plan to evade the crowds in the day and, and, and to avoid the other problems that would have come from the arrest during the day. The very reason that they were able to arrest him was because he ordained it. You cannot kill God. You cannot kill Jesus against his will. And so Jesus lays down his life willingly at the cross. Again, looking to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, Jesus is silent before the authorities. As he stands on trial, he is silent. He is mocked, he is beaten, he is flogged. Finally, he is crucified and he remains silent. He makes himself appear powerless and helpless. And so if you are struggling with pride, look to Jesus. Consider Jesus on the cross, hanging there on the cross for your sins, for my sins. Consider Jesus Christ, not only his example of humility, but remember that the very pride that you are struggling with has been nailed to that cross. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has paid it all. So we've considered this morning, we've considered the dreadfulness of pride that just as the Apostle Paul, in addressing the Philippians, tells them not to look only to their own interests, but to the interests of others, he turns their minds to consider Jesus Christ. He does not give them a long list of self-helps and changes they need to make in their lifestyles, but he points them to their risen Savior. 
And this isn't the end of the story, as you all know. We, Lord willing, consider verses 9 through 11. We see that this Jesus Christ was exalted. He did not remain in the grave. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and confess that he is Lord. This is the Jesus Christ. And so as you struggle with pride in your various relationships, as you are tempted to ask the question, do you know who I am? Turn it back to yourself and say, do I know who I am? Do I know that I am a wretched sinner who was saved by grace alone? By the righteousness of Christ alone? And that there was nothing that I brought to the cross. There's nothing that I contributed to my salvation. May that help us as we seek to be putting pride to death in our lives daily. May we cling to the cross, remember, not just as an example, but remembering that he is our righteousness. There is no room for pride in the church. Because pride destroys relationships. But we ought to look to Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to him daily, not just on the Lord's day, not just in your quiet times. Cry out to him, depend on him, feed upon him. Be concerned about the effective ministry of the church. Remember that a divided church cannot be effective in the ministry of the gospel. So may God help us in this regard. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we worship you and we adore you for the great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we can read about in your word, that we can reflect upon. And, oh, Lord, how we fall short of your standard daily, how we are prone to make much of ourselves and little of you. And so we pray that you would forgive us our sins, that you would help us look to Jesus Christ that we would not only consider his example, he who was the very son of God, who humbled himself to the point of death, but that we would also hold fast to the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Equip us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.